High in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon, welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground and mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from the Prayer for Humanity. Bless us all, O Lord, we pray, for loved ones here and near and far away, and everyone for whom we pray. Keep us safe each night and each day, the homeless who have no place to stay, those who are suffering in any way, the dying, those mourning or grieving, and all who need God's mercy. Keep us safe, Heavenly Father, when we are at home or traveling on our way, or when we are vulnerable or in danger of any way possible. Most merciful Father, please hear us pray. My guest today is Christy Hugstad. She is the author of Beneath the Surface, A Teen's Guide to Reaching Out When You and Your Friend Are in Crisis. She's a grief recovery specialist. She also writes for the Huffington Post, and she's also the founder and the podcast moderator of The Grief Girl. Christy, thank you for being here, and please tell us, The Grief Girl, what's that about? How are you enjoying that? Oh, I I love it. It's my branding for doing podcasts and my writing and this kind of gives uh, me a, a, a title for people to recognize my work. Nice. Are you enjoying doing the shows and talking to people and really getting the word out there? I'm loving it. Now, it's given me a whole new sense of purpose, and the feedback has been incredible. So I enjoy each and every one of the podcasts and sharing my story. Nice. Tell us, what is a grief recovery specialist? Um, it's basically working with people that are grieving a loss of any kind. It doesn't just have to be death. You could be grieving the loss of, of identity, of faith, a job, a relationship. Let's say you're going through a, du- a, a divorce. So the grief recovery work that I do with my clients is taking, taking them back to their first memory of loss and kind of working with them to figure out where their belief system came from. You know, a lot of a lot of us learned how to handle grief and loss by our parents. I know for me personally, the first loss that I experienced was the loss of our family dog. And I was probably six years old, and I watched my parents' reaction, and nobody said anything, and the dog just vanished, and we never talked about it. And so I kind of grew up learning that that was the way that you deal with grief. You don't, and you don't talk about it. So when I take clients back to how, how do you, what's your history in dealing with grief? What, what did you learn from your parents, your family, your friends? And then it starts to all kind of come together, and they can make sense of their grieving process and sometimes make some changes and uh, make the grieving process um, a little less painful. The dog, that's fascinating. I think that's how most kids first did touch on the subject. I'm glad you brought that up. It doesn't always have to be a grandparent, but a special animal in your life. And you're right, the dog sort of disappears unless you have parents who say, well, we're going to take a moment here and we're going to make a burial space in the yard and we're going to talk about Fluffy and maybe eat Fluffy's... um, We'll have, you know, I guess we're not going to eat Fluffy's favorite treats, but maybe his favorite human (laughs) scraps or something. Then you're right. It kind of goes away and life goes on. And maybe a kitty shows up in a week or two and off we go. And this really all builds over time, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. I think all of us that have lost pets as children, 
remember it vividly. You know, I mean, the first loss as a child, you don't have any, you don't have skills or the brain power to process that. So it's extremely traumatic. Um, and so, you know, that's the whole part. What I teach my clients, it's not getting over your loss and that, and that your grieving will stop. You know, that's not the point at all. It's how to recover from the pain associated with the loss. You know, because we will grieve forever in some form, but our grief will change and morph over time, and it'll become a part of our new normal. So true, so true. I'm sure you've heard of the five stages of grief. For those who haven't, it's denial, then anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. And if you want to learn those five, it's on the internet anywhere. A really important thing, and I think with children too, there's that sense of uh, those come out, you act out, you know, all of a sudden you go into your teen years, you're still acting out a little bit because of maybe something that happened that wasn't right. And grief really doesn't unfold so neatly in those stages. And the reality of grief, it feels different for people. It's unpredictable. It's uncertain. It's messy. And I think your book does a really fantastic job of really talking to people about how this is normal, that idea of depression or messy grief, all of those things. Well, and I think these stages of grief are really misleading because it gives you the sense that after you reach that fifth stage of acceptance, you should be done. You know, I am so glad to be at that fifth stage of acceptance because now I can stop feeling pain and I can just get on with my life. And with that, and then when that doesn't happen, you start to think, well, what's wrong with me? You know, I've, 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 floundered through the first four, and I'm feeling like this is a really good place to be. And they do repeat themselves. Grief is like a roller coaster ride where you're up one day, down the next, and you just stay on that ride. And it doesn't actually end, it just changes. So instead of calling it the five stages of grief, I like to think of it as common responses, because not everybody experiences five different phases or stages of grief. And I know for me, you know, I was angry initially, and I was in shock, and I felt guilty, and I felt a lot of emotions that aren't included in those those five stages. And then they repeated. I got angry again, you know, where maybe I should have been bargaining at that point, but I was angry again. So I think it's important for your listeners to know that it's perfectly normal to not follow things in a linear fashion and that those common responses can and will repeat and don't feel like there's something wrong with you when, you know, your grief isn't moving in a linear fashion. You are referring to something, of course, that happened really poignant in your life back in 2012. And even though it's been seven years, no, it's not done in a quiet little neat package where it's now on the shelf. This is something which is that the, the rage and those feelings do come up. They're uncertain and messy and unsettling. So your coping mechanism too, you wrote this book, you wrote another book, you do the grief counseling. If you can reach back to us and tell people what happened in your life that was so amazingly significant to really give us now the gift of you getting into grief recovery and being a specialist for all of us. Well, I guess after my husband's suicide, I thought, you know, uh, this is, I am so overwhelmed, I don't know what to do with this pain. And for a while, I was just kind of struggling, you know, to get out of bed and try to 
take baby steps into resuming a, a, a normal lifestyle. And then I started to not like who I was becoming. And so I kind of had that conversation with myself. You know, you have two choices here. You can either wallow in the pain of your trauma and your experience and feel sorry for yourself, or you can take your pain and you can use that to inspire others. And I'm not one to just quit. So my natural choice, of course, was, you know, I'm going to do something about this because I don't want anybody else to have to go through what I went through if I can educate about warning signs of depression and risk factors of depression and suicide so that there are no more bills, Bill was my husband's name, then that is going to change the trajectory and the purpose of my life. And I can turn that into something very positive. Beautiful. You could have gone so many different ways. And that's fantastic. And I've talked to other people, you know, that have had similar situations and asked to meet or talk about it or do a podcast. And they're like, no, 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 I I don't want to talk about it. And for some reason, I think, well, if you don't talk about it, then it didn't happen or it's not real. But I guess, again, we all grieve differently. And that's not my personality to just, you know, go into a hole and hide. Um, So I'm really using my pain to try to make a difference for other people. And to say his name, too. He was a person. He had a place in your life. This is the person who had a place in the universe. And to keep saying that, that's a really important thing. And I'm glad you brought that up. Well, absolutely. And, you know, because someone has died doesn't mean they didn't live. And I get comfort when other people that knew Bill really well, his friends or his clients, tell me, you know, really inspiring, funny stories about Bill, because it makes me smile. And it validates, you know, that he was a really wonderful man. So I, it it helps me with my grief, when other people talk about him, use his name and not shy around it and think, well, I better not ask Christy anything about Bill because, you know, I'm afraid to. So keep their spirit alive. Talk to them, you know, talk about them. And uh, I just think that's really important to honor their life instead of just continuing to grieve their death. Or people will say, well, oh, gosh, I don't want to bring Bill up to her because then I don't want to remind her about this. But, you know, the catch-22 about that is you're never not reminded about it. You're aware of it at all times. Someone bringing it to your to your consciousness isn't now, oh, gosh, that's right, I forgot this happened. So that's a funny thing we do as humans to try to protect somebody from their grief. Well, and, you know, there isn't an hour that doesn't go by that I don't think of him. So if somebody brings him up or tells me a story or wants to or asks me a question out of, you know, genuine concern and love, I am really, really flattered and happy that he that they're not forgetting him either. So, um, yeah, people don't don't know how to handle loss. And so they don't. And I think they think if they don't bring it up, maybe it'll be easier for the griever. And that's just not the case. That's why shows like mine and shows like yours, podcasts and different shows at stations are coming about now because we're starting to realize this is a really important conversation. It can be a positive conversation because ultimately we all are in this together and we all can support each other. And just like Hillary Clinton wrote the book, It Takes a Village to Raise a Child, it really takes a village to help with grief and 
dying and death and to walk through that with somebody and make it out okay on the other side. Absolutely. And we can't do life alone and we certainly can't do grief alone. You know, that's when we need the support of our friends and our family and our communities and our churches and the people that are there for us in our lives. We need them to rally for us and and help us, you know, walk that, that dark path of grief. My guest today is Christy Hugstad. She writes Beneath the Surface, A Teen's Guide to Reaching Out When You or Your Friend is in Crisis. Something I noticed about this book, Christy, when I was reading is that you really address a different chapter. Um, In every chapter, you really address a different cause or an aspect, a depression or suicidal thoughts, and you really try to normalize that and make people know, hey, if you go through any of this in your youth and while you're growing and processing, this is a very normal aspect of growing up. And I find something that I tell people occasionally that they get nervous about is I really feel to some extent we all are somewhat mentally ill. I think some of us have everything put away really well in nice little tidy boxes, and other people have it out spilled all over the place. I think ultimately we are all broken inside, don't you? Absolutely. And But the problem is that over the years, there has been such a stigma attached with mental illness. And you are right. All of us experience an array of negative emotions. We can be on the top of the world today and then tomorrow, you know, not be feeling so good and wondering what our purpose in life is. So our emotions and our mental health you know, we are all on a roller coaster. So we need to normalize these conversations. And that's why I was so motivated to write Beneath the Surface because, you know, my husband was 54 years old and he was a very proud man and he'd already bought into the stigma of mental illness. He was not about to own that he was sick or reach out for help. So those conversations and that education for suicide prevention needs to start with our youth and we've got to normalize it and that's why my book is not it's not a textbook and i'm not talking down to the teens i'm talking with them and having a discussion and also you know i'm also a, a credentialed health teacher so i know how hard it is for teachers and parents and counselors to start conversations conversations you know about tough topics And I'm always saying, we've got to talk about it. We've got to start conversations. But I also knew that I had to take that one step further, because how do you do that? That's the missing piece of information. So in the back of the book, for each chapter, for every issue that our teens are facing today, I have discussion questions. You know, like, what would you do if one of your friends, you know, told you that he was thinking about taking his life? So it makes it easy for a parent or a teacher to have that discussion, you know, with their team. And that's what's been missing. It's one thing to say, have a conversation, and we've got to start talking about it. It's another thing to just say, here are questions to start it. So that was my main objective of the book, is kind of to write it in a way that it's a lesson plan for teachers and counselors and make it easy to talk to their students about difficult topics. You point out something very important that we might not think of. It's that depression can strike anyone, and it does not discriminate. Absolutely. And it's an illness. You know, I mean, the the problem with depression and major depression, which Bill had, you know, he wasn't getting flowers. Nobody was coming to visit him. 
it wasn't like he had cancer and people were calling to say, how are you doing and can I bring over a casserole? A lot of times when you have a mental illness, you are left all, you're left to struggle alone because you feel a certain sense of shame. And that's not true with somebody who ha- has been diagnosed with cancer. You know, it's, it, there's flowers being sent. So mental illness has a long way to go before we can abolish that stigma and encourage people to reach out for help when they need it. I have a friend with a teenage son, and he has OCD, um, which is just a compulsion disorder for organization. And he has some other mental challenges that he deals with. And she says, you know, Elizabeth, it'd just be so much easier if he had a difficulty to maybe get up and down the stairs. If people really physically saw something, they'd say, oh, well, he's in a wheelchair. Of course he sees the world differently. But they can't tell by looking at him because this looks like a blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid. And he's not social. He's not really into other people. And nobody can get it. So I love what you're saying that, yeah, your husband wasn't receiving the actual social awareness and the social acceptance that he was okay and things possibly can get better here. Well, and you know, just like a lot of the teens that I I speak to in schools and my husband, Bill, they, a lot of people can be that great pretender and they can act when they need to and pretend that everybody's okay for a short period of time. And my husband did that. You know, he could step up and pretend for when he needed to. And then he would come home and, you know, isolate and be withdrawn and crawl back into bed. But for the short time, especially teens, you know, when you're around your peers and you don't want to be bullied or made fun of, you put that smile on your face just to get through the day. And so you're absolutely right. You know, there's no evidence of, you know, a physical ailment. And that's, you know, where I came up with the title of my book, Beneath the Surface. You don't know what's lurking beneath the surface of these teens because they have learned to be great pretenders. What were the words that you heard from Pastor Rick Warren of the Saddleback Church that touched you so deeply? You know, he did a series, like an eight-week series on grief. And I, this was, it was just so timely I mean, it was a few weeks after Bill's suicide, and I thought he was speaking to me. I thought, this isn't coincidence. And I remember sitting there listening to him with my mouth dropping open, and he was saying, take your pain and make a difference in other people's lives. And that resonated with me, and I, that was the turning point when I said, I am going to do exactly that. And it was so inspiring, and it really motivated me, you know, to do something positive and make a difference in other people's lives. Not everybody is going to be an advocate for mental health and suicide prevention, but those of us who are so passionate about it and have been personally in such a dark place, you know, need to be the ones to speak for everybody and change the dynamic you know, of, of our country's perception of mental illness. And that starts in our churches, in our communities, in our schools, and we have to start in our own backyards. So I just thought this whole series on grief was so inspiring for me. 
And I can see your inspiration because, Christy, your book is really able to, to save lives. You speak really candidly about today's youth, and you help the parents, the teachers, the coaches, and everybody else who loves these kids really understand about anxiety and depression and suicide attempts and all the stuff that we don't want to talk about. But this and these things are the challenges that face this generation. Well, and you know, I will also say that parents don't want their kids to have depression or anxiety or any sort of mental illness. They want their kids to be normal because it's so much work and there's a shame for the parents to have a child with mental illness. So it's not just the teens that are buying into the stigma, it's the parents as well. And that needs to change because what I find when I talk to the kids at the school my message to them is tell an adult you trust. It can be your parent. It can be a teacher, a counselor, administrator. It can be your church pastor. And after my presentation, there'll be a line out the door because I'm that adult they trust because I'm not their parent and I'm not their teacher and I'm not going to hold it against them in school or maybe give them a little leeway in their grades because I feel sorry for you. And that's what's interesting is they don't know where to turn. And those kids are afraid also of their parents' reaction, that they're going to say things like, you know what, I had it tougher than you when I was a kid, or you have to suck it up and it's not that bad. And, you know, this isn't going to last forever or things that aren't helpful. So, you know, parents also, you know, the book isn't just for the teens. It's also for the adults and any of us who have loved ones love teens in our lives. We need to have empathy for what they're going through and sit down and listen and get them help when they need it. And these teens, they're facing more unique challenges. My husband and I took our 12-year-old daughter and a friend to the county fair this summer. And while we were in the car in the parking lot, we said, okay, kids, now in case there is a mass shooting or you hear gunfire, this is what you need to do. And as I was telling her this, my heart is hurting because when I was a kid going to the county fair, <laughs> never would we have thought about this. My husband's from New Jersey and he's a tough guy and he's kind of saying, yeah, you know, this is only the talk that we would tell kids if we were going to like the, the, the really bad part of the shore or something and those surfers that might be, you know, trying to not like you to steal their surfboards or something. But this Correct. is that idea of, okay, if, you know, duck for cover, go here, you've got your cell phones, make sure our phone number's on speed dial, all these things. It is a completely different world nowadays and parents really sort of need to get hip to the program that we are <laughs> really moving along and progressing in a really not so positive way in the peer pressure and the clicks and this real fast changing social media world that we have out there, huh? Well, yes, the technology is a big part of the problem. And you're right. You know, when I, I grew up in a small town in southern Minnesota, and when I went to the county fair, my parents didn't know I was there or care as long as I was home before dark. You know, there, were, there was none of this. And technology has changed the whole environment that our kids are growing up in. It's, you know, I, when I left school, if I was being bullied, which I, I was in, in ninth grade, but at least when I, got, when I left school, I had a safe place at home. And if somebody wanted to continue to bully me, they'd have to call my landline and 
my parents would probably answer. <laughs> but for kids, for kids now, they don't have a safe place. So when they leave school and they're at home, that's when the cyberbullying actually picks up because everybody's home. They've got time to do that. Everybody's on Snapchat, Instagram, and, you know, it's the like generation. You know, they're putting things out there to get approval from peers, and they also are getting cyberbullied. And when that kind of pressure is 24-7 for these teens, um, no wonder they're overwhelmed and no wonder they have depression. It's, it's, it's technology is playing such a big part in all of this that it has to be moderated. It really does. I mean, everybody needs to get on the same page, parents, administrators, and we have to get these kids backing down off of social media. I think back. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm just saying because that cyberbullying and the bullying is a huge cause of teen suicide. And that's being done at school, but it's also cyberbullying being done at home and on weekends. That's important to think just because you put your child in a Christian school or a boarding school or something where you think, okay, well, the parent to teach or the teacher to student ratio is very small and they're protected and everything is safe. You're right. In the classroom, you all can be sitting there staring at the chalkboard. Not much is happening, but it really is like you're saying, when time is on your hands, if kids aren't doing sports or kids aren't doing something productive and they're not really getting into their homework, they're sort of messing around on their phone. And it's really easy to sort of get into these group chats, which insults somebody or says something mean. And it's that group mentality. Hey, okay, well, if one person's throwing a rock in an abandoned building, hey, I can pick one up too. And pretty soon you're all doing it. And it's just like that one kid who's getting picked on and no one's aware of it because the kid just looks like they're sitting on their bed with their phone and, you know, they're minding their own business or chatting with a girlfriend, right? No big deal. Absolutely. And there was a there was a case yesterday, I think it was in New Jersey, where there was, a, I think, a 13-year-old boy that that was actually being beaten up at school. And there were about 50 kids oh. standing around. When they took the kid that was being beat up to the hospital, he died. And the other kids, the 50 kids that were surrounding him, they were videotaping it. Oh. Nobody oh. helped him. Painful. So what does that say about our teen culture? You are videoing somebody being beaten up and he was beaten up so badly that he died. And this was just, I think yesterday or the day before. When they used to say we're going to hell in a handbasket, I think that's what they really mean. That's just, what is that? What's, where's our humanity? Well, you know what part of the problem is? I think the kids are so, it's so important to be popular and liked and accepted by your peers. I think more so than at any for any other generation, because there's a way to measure it now. It's through likes. Mm. You know, the way that we were measured popularity-wise is if we got asked to the prom. You know? So for teens now, it's, it's every five minutes you're being judged and evaluated. And to top it off, their little brains are so undeveloped, and that prefrontal cortex, that front part of the brain that is responsible for decision-making and it's not developed until about age 25. So I think we also have to have a little understanding that sometimes the parents and teachers and other adults need to serve as the teen's prefrontal cortex for them. And I also let kids know, hey, when your parents tell you you're making bad decisions, 
don't just blow that up because they're your parent. You, your brain is not fully developed and you are impulsive. So you're going to act first and then think later, whoa, I, I maybe shouldn't have done that. And that's why teen suicide is so scary because of that lack of brain development. They have a tendency to act impulsively. And when you're being bullied and you think that it is the end of your world, you know, you are more apt to act on impulse. And that's a really scary thing. If you want to hear more from Christy Hugstad, you can hear her at www.thegriefgirl.com. If you want to read more, her latest book, Beneath the Surface, A Teen's Guide to Reaching Out When You and Your Friend is in Crisis. You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM, The Truth. Until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.